It's six o'clock on the dot and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, November 9th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. In tonight's news, a local organization works to provide meals for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. Wisconsin's education community is looking ahead to next spring's elections. A UW-Madison researcher reacts to the reintroduction of a bill that would fund universal no-cost school meals. And in the second half, an attorney tells us how long we ought to wait for open records. Our local fishing report tells us what's in season this fall. And Madison's own flamingos are already looking forward to next season. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The 2024 race for president between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is a toss-up, according to the Marquette University Law School poll released yesterday. The poll shows Biden with 50% of support from registered Wisconsin voters compared to 48% for Trump well within the poll's 4.5% margin of error. The poll also shows Biden trailing Republican candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. On the war between Israel and the Palestinian group Hamas, 28% of those polled say the United States is providing too much aid to Israel, 23% say it's not supporting Israel enough, and 46% say the U.S. is giving Israel an appropriate level of support. The poll of 908 registered voters in Wisconsin was conducted by phone and online between October 26th and November 2nd. On Tuesday, the state, the Senate approved four constitutional amendments, and this afternoon, the state assembly approved three of them. All of them are looking to change election policy in Wisconsin, and two of them will appear on ballots in 2024. One would prohibit government bodies from accepting private donations to administer elections. That comes after Wisconsin's five biggest cities received a combined $6.3 million in 2020 from a nonprofit group to help administer safe elections during the pandemic. That donation from the Center for Tech and Civic Life was largely bankrolled by Mark Zuckerberg and became the part of and became the subject of GOP ire in the 2020 presidential election. The second, set to appear on the ballot next November, was specified that only U.S. citizens can vote in Wisconsin. Though, though non-citizens already can't vote in federal elections, Republican legislatures want to close what they see as a loophole, enabling municipalities and other states to permit non-citizens to vote in local elections. Two other proposed amendments, one that would bar governments from um, ordering places of worship to close in the face of emergencies like the COVID-19 pandemic, and an other, another that would establish photo identification as a requirement for voting are still moving through the legislature. Constitutional amendments are different from regular legislative bills. Instead, they must be passed in two successive years by the legislature and they can be put on the ballot. If voters approve a constitutional amendment, it is immediately enshrined in the state constitution and the governor cannot veto it. A nonprofit that has enjoyed a no-bid contract with the Milwaukee Public Schools for a decade is under scrutiny as board members question its effectiveness, according to the investigative news organization Wisconsin Watch. The Milwaukee Education Partnership was founded in 1999 to improve student achievement and teacher retention. But since then, the group's founder and leading civic organizations that were a part of the partnership have ended their affiliation. That has left Gerald Randall as the group's executive director and sole employee. Randall is also the first vice chairman of the Republican Party of Wisconsin. Several leading local officials have said the partnership listed them on tax filings as board members without their knowledge. They include Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson, State Superintendent of Public Instruction Jill Underly, Milwaukee Scooper, Sup, uh, School Superintendent Keith Posley, Milwaukee Area Technical College President Nikki Vicki Martin, and University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Chancellor, Chancellor Mark Money. 
The State Department of Public Instruction is inviting people to offer their views on strategic plans for public education in Wisconsin at a series of public forums. The first session will be a virtual forum from 5.30 to 7 p.m. next Monday the 13th. People can register to attend the forum through the DPI website. Live sessions will be held later this month in Manaqua, the Wausau suburb of Weston, Eau Claire, and on Alaska. Additional live sessions will be held around the state in coming months, according to DPI. The department also has an online survey on strategic planning available that is linked to its website. State legislators on both sides of the aisle are circulating a bill that would allow UW-Madison to conduct a study of psilocybin, the psychoactive compound produced by more than 200 species of fungi. Specifically, researchers would analyze psilocybin's effect on Wisconsin veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Multiple recent studies have found evidence that psilocybin can help reduce depression and anxiety. Similar legislation has passed in Texas, Maryland, and Washington. And Oregon has a fully legalized psilocybin for medicinal use. Wisconsin's bill, if passed, would greenlight a UW study on veterans who are 21 or older. The researchers would then have to submit regular progress reports to the governor and other legislators. In spite of this bipartisan effort, the bill is unlikely to make it through the legislature. Today, the UW system regents voted unanimously to change how they raise tuition rates. State university students pay a base tuition, but some programs come with an additional fee. Typically, that fee supports programs that are expensive to run or have a large class, many of them in the sciences. Before today's decision, the system's policy required that they consult students who would be directly affected by rising costs in specific programs. Despite protests from UW-Madison students' government, the requirement is now gone, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The regions did not explain why they changed their policy. And in yesterday's story on Dane County's new Farm Workers Housing Fund, we mistakenly aired a false narrative on Jefferson Rodriguez's death. In 2019, the eight-year-old boy was struck by heavy machinery on a dairy farm in Dane County, his father's workplace. Deputies on the scene were not proficient in Spanish, and due to a serious miscommunication, their official police report incorrectly stated that his father was the person who hit him. Local media went on to report that account to the public, and we repeated that same error in yesterday's show, though journalists at ProPublica painstakingly unraveled and corrected that false narrative in an investigative report back in February. We deeply regret disseminating that falsehood again, and we are very grateful to ProPublica's Melissa Sanchez and Alessandra Calderon, who acted so quickly to correct our mistake. Please visit our website to view our corrected story. We've included details of a public affairs interview with Melissa Sanchez and Miriam Jermiel, a co-author on ProPublica's investigative report. And in their interview, they explore the systemic failures that led to Mr. Rodriguez being falsely accused of his son's death. And now on to today's top stories. For this year's Thanksgiving holiday, the Goodman Community Center is aiming to provide 4,000 food baskets to families in Dane County, as they have done in past years. They're counting on community members to bring in thousands of cans of cranberry sauce and thousands of frozen turkeys to fill them up. Reporter Sarah Gabler has the story. Every year, the Goodman Community Center distributes thousands of turkeys, boxes of mac and cheese, and pumpkin pie as part of their Thanksgiving basket drive. The drive draws together people across Dane County, from neighborhood groups that organize food drives to cyclists who participate in Cranksgiving, a national food drive on wheels. Francesca Frisk, the assistant director of Goodman Center's food pantry, attests that their annual drive is a special event. We couldn't do this event without the community. We'll have almost 700 volunteers come and help out. We'll have dozens and dozens of food drives happening throughout the community. It just really is heartwarming to see how much Madison and greater Dane County comes together to kind of respond to this need every year. Four years ago, they served 3,500 families, and since then, the number has grown to 4,000. Those 4,000 baskets support roughly 25,000 people, including 10,000 children. The COVID pandemic more than likely caused that growth. 
In addition, local food pantries report surging demand for assistance in the wake of cuts to the federal food stamp program known as SNAP. Nationally, over 30 million people experienced a cut or elimination of SNAP benefits when the COVID extensions ended in February. Amy Hoag, Goodman Center's Director of Communications, says that they would like to serve more families in need, but they are currently at capacity. This year, we ended up having to close registration a couple of days early because of the unprecedented need in the community. You know, we're just seeing in our food pantry that the demand is up. Folks are really struggling and need the help. Hoag says that folks come from all over Dane County to pick up Thanksgiving baskets. Some families use the Goodman Food Pantry year-round, but others need support putting on the special and expensive meal. And when it comes to this holiday meal, it's just not in the budget because, as you would know, you know, these foods are not things you generally have in the house. They cost more. It's generally a, a bigger to-do than what you would do on a weeknight dinner. So um, folks who maybe aren't in need of those services on a day-to-day basis do need help at this special time of year. Last year, the Goodman Center ran out of some items the weekend before Thanksgiving. Hoag says that Madisonians showed up to help fill in the gaps. So we put out a call to the community to help us out, and my goodness, did the community turn out. It was amazing. Uh, You know, we had hundreds of people who came to donate food throughout the day on Sunday. It's easy to get involved, says Hoag. Anyone can visit GoodmanCenter.org. On our website, we have an outline of the ways to get involved. A great thing to do uh, this week and into next week would be to host a food drive. Each basket will contain a frozen turkey, veggies, milk, eggs, butter, stuffing, cranberry sauce, gravy, mac and cheese, cooking oil, ice cream, dinner rolls, and a pumpkin pie. If you're picking up extra groceries to donate, be sure to consult the list of needed items on the Goodman Center's website. You can also give a monetary donation online. Monetary donations help Goodman Center staff fill in any gaps, says Hoag, who last year made a last-minute trip to gather supplies. I personally went to uh, Aldi on the east side and bought all of their cooking oil that they had. I just took it all, um, (laughs) filled up my car. If you missed the registration window for Goodman's Thanksgiving basket, it's not too late. The Goodman Center will offer a limited number of baskets on a first-come, first-served basis on Tuesday, November 21st, between 9 a.m. and noon. And even if you miss out on a full basket, you might still be able to pick up a turkey at that time. You can also contact Second Harvest Food Bank or visit another local food pantry as they tend to stock up on holiday foods this time of year. For WORT News, I'm Sarah Gabler. Around the country this week, many states saw voters make their choices for local school board candidates. Now, that wasn't the case in Wisconsin, but the education community is looking ahead to next spring's elections, and officials hope to keep some of the polarization at bay that has increasingly influenced school boards. Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen has a report. While many other states analyze school board races from this week, Wisconsin candidates will soon begin filing paperwork for elections next spring. An education group says there's a need for people to run in response to a more divisive era. In December, school board candidates can begin gathering petitions ahead of the 2024 primary. Heather Dubois-Bernan of the Wisconsin Public Education Network says some school districts around the state have dealt with the more politically toxic atmosphere seen elsewhere in the U.S. She says that does create a void. And we have seen a number of veteran school board leaders decide that they've had enough and aren't seeking re-election in some places. She says that's why now is a good time for communities to recruit candidates to avoid any last-minute scrambles if more current board members choose not to run. Bornon adds that despite some of the recent rhetoric, Wisconsin voters in large part haven't shown great interest in supporting candidates pushing divisive issues like book bans. However, Bornan says they have seen some candidates who struck a moderate tone on the campaign trail but wound up being more extreme after winning an election. She says at the end of the day, voters want people who care about helping schools and students, not someone solely focused on making noise. She hopes people on the fence about running keep that in mind. We really need those good guys to jump in and say, hey, I'm ready to step up and lead this community. And I think folks will be surprised at how well received that message is. The Wisconsin Public Education Network doesn't endorse candidates, but does provide guidance for those considering running. Meanwhile, Bornan says voters will be busy deciding other education-related matters next year, suggesting there will be plenty of school referenda next spring. 
She says despite a state funding boost this year, aid still isn't keeping pace with inflation, forcing continued belt tightening among districts. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Earlier this week, state Democrats announced that they plan to reintroduce legislation in order to fund no-cost school meals. The bill was written with input from Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin, a coalition of public health, education, and youth services organizations. Jennifer Gaddis, an associate professor at UW-Madison and a member of that coalition, this summer, she conducted a survey of school food service workers who says her findings point to a need for systematic change. After this week's bill's announcement, she shared some insight with WORT news producer Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, Jen. Thank you for having me. So to start, can you walk us through the finer points of the survey you conducted with Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin? Our main focus is really on trying to document what the labor conditions are for school nutrition workers across the state. This was a priority for not only our Healthy School Meals for All coalition, but also one of our leaders within a coalition, which is the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin, because we really feel like in order to have the strongest programs possible to really serve our students and our communities, we really need to make sure that workers are being treated fairly and that programs can attract and retain enough staff. So we did a project to not only document what wages look like, but also benefits and how many hours people typically work and whether those jobs are typically seasonal, so meaning nine months of the school year, or if those are longer positions that would be year-round. So we really wanted to understand just um, kind of what the circumstances are, um, issues that people are having with recruitment and retention, but also where there might be bright spots within the state of Wisconsin, where there are school districts that maybe have higher than average wages or better compensation that we can learn from how they're affording to do those things within their school nutrition budget. I'm leading the project is how I would describe it in terms of the research portion, but it's in collaboration with other members of the coalition. So in our working group that's focused on labor wages and compensation, that working group was created because it was a primary issue that the coalition identified as being important to be really thinking about very seriously alongside trying to get free school meals for all students. And so that working group has involved not only several school nutrition directors from across the state, but also representatives Christina Shelton and Francesca Hong and some other coalition members along the way. Their role was more so providing feedback on the direction of the study and helping us recruit participants and kind of thinking through when we had our results, what the most important issues are to communicate to different audiences and how to do it. So what were your major findings? Do you have any particularly interesting statistics? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we found was that the vast majority of jobs in school nutrition departments in Wisconsin are part-time jobs. So four out of five hourly positions are part-time, and most of these positions are nine months, meaning that they're seasonal. And so when school nutrition departments are trying to attract staff into their programs, they can be challenging because they're competing for some of the same staff members that other school departments might be competing for, and some of those other departments can offer year-round salaries and more full-time hours. So one of the things that several members of our working group really wanted to dive into more deeply was whether we could identify a gendered pay gap between school nutrition workers who are predominantly women and custodial workers who are almost universally men. And of course, there is a several dollar an hour wage difference and the custodial positions are much more likely to be full-time and year-round. So it's kind of identifying those types of issues that not only lead to the job being low wage from an hourly perspective, but even lower when you think about somebody's annual take-home pay. And we also did some work to compare what those jobs look like relative to other jobs in institutional food service, like in hospitals or assisted living facilities. And some people might think that, oh, well, the work there is more nuanced or more complicated, but that's not really the case. And that's another thing that we were really trying to do in our report was to document that 
actually people who work in school nutrition programs, they have to have very high levels of knowledge surrounding food safety and handling procedures, as well as nutrition and allergies, because they're dealing with children who have special diets. They have to have culinary skills to prepare the food, and they have to have a lot of time organizational skills to make sure that they really have enough food prepared for students during the start of different lunch periods or breakfast service. And they also have to have interpersonal skills in terms of interacting with the students. So there's a lot, I think, that goes into it that people don't always realize. Like one quote, I think, from the study that always like kind of sticks out in my mind is the school nutrition director who compared the work that she does every day to basically organizing and catering a wedding like for 500 people and that people don't always think about it as, you know, a really complex affair. But in a lot of ways it is, especially if you're integrating any kind of scratch so like fresh preparation, scratch cooking or local sourcing of less processed ingredients. So I think there is partly this issue of really trying to build respect for the school nutrition profession and help people understand what the jobs are like and just sort of question why it is that these positions tend to be the lowest paid or sometimes tied for lowest paid in a district, but also at the same time to really show people that one of the ways that we can start to improve job quality for school nutrition workers is actually by having universal free school meals. And so the way that that really happens is that when you have higher participation rates, so say you have 70% of students in your school or in your district eating school lunch, that brings a lot more revenue into your school nutrition department than if you maybe only have 40% of students on any given day choosing to eat school lunch. And there's certain things that are kind of fixed costs within the school nutrition department and their operations and infrastructure. When you bring more and more people into the program, you can have new economies of scale that really help you do things like provide higher wages or more full-time hours or more year-round employment for workers. One of the things that we have tried to visualize, so we have an infographic in that report that shows this virtuous cycle of improvement in school meals, where we really feel like when you have universal free school meals that can help increase participation, that's great, but you also have to be thinking about meal quality. And one of the ways that you get higher meal quality is by having more fresh preparation and also more culturally relevant meals. And all of those things really require you to have a skilled labor force that is capable working with different kinds of products and also able to afford to stay in their job. When we start to make investments, either at the state level or you know nationally through federal legislation, we can start to really jumpstart our virtuous cycle of improvement and get us to kind of a different model of school food programming. I think one thing that we have really learned from looking at some of the other states, so there's eight states in the United States that have passed some form of free school meals for all legislation in the wake of the pandemic. And several of those states have included some sort of parallel legislation that would provide increased funding for local food or farm to school programming. And a smaller number of those states have added to that local food procurement piece some sort of direct allocation of state funding to help supplement wages for school nutrition workers. And I think that one of the things that we've really learned from looking at some of these other states is that it's important to be investing in all three of those areas if you want to see the greatest impact from a free school meals for all policy. Similar bills Mm -hmm. and a provision in Governor Evers' biennial budget proposal have not made it through the Republican-held state legislature. This time around, Mm -hmm. state Democrats are more optimistic because of Speaker Voss's task force on childhood obesity. Do you share that perspective? Mm I think that the task force on childhood obesity is a really important sign. And I think that if people, meaning politicians, can do the work of looking directly at the issues and the data, I think that they would see that one of the most effective tools we have in terms of public health and public policy to really impact children's health at the societal level is our school meal programs, because they exist in pretty much every community that you can think of across the state. It can be easy to think about like, oh, well, that's something that's just going to benefit this group of people more so than this group of people. And like, maybe we should think about using our resources differently. 
And this bill, it's important to recognize that this is actually something that not only public schools, but also private schools can participate in. As long as they're participating in the federal national school lunch or breakfast programs, they would be eligible to receive the supplemental funding from the state and offer free meals in their schools. So it's not restricted to public schools. It could be any K-12 institution in the state. That's a really huge lever that you can try to pull on, right, to try to impact childhood obesity in the state. We know that particularly for younger children, before you kind of get to high school age, the number one place where they're most likely to consume food outside of their own home environment is school. You know, it's a lot harder in some ways to shape individual consumer purchases or food habits. So in a lot of ways, schools are kind of the most effective intervention point for public health because you have more centrally designed you know, menus and sourcing and purchasing. And you also have the opportunity to do a lot surrounding food and nutrition education as well. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Jen. You're welcome. Have a great rest of your day. You too. That was Jennifer Gaddis, an associate professor at UW-Madison. She recently worked with Healthy School Meals for All's Wisconsin Coalition to conduct a survey of the state's school nutrition workforce. Now that state Democrats plan to reintroduce school meal legislation that has failed in the past, Gaddis says the GOP should see this as an opportunity to improve public health and support local farmers. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with my fellow host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT's Dylan Brogan and Open Records attorney Tom Kamenick explore how long is too long to wait for a public records request and what you can do about it. Now, as always, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a discussion of general legal issues. Tom, thank you for joining me today. Hey, Dylan, how you doing? Just fine. So we've submitted a records request. How long do we have to wait before we get a response? And how long does it typically take? Who knows? (laughs) One of the big problems in Wisconsin law is that there's no deadline, no even strong guidance on how long these things should take. The law says they have to provide the records as soon as practicable and without delay. What does that actually mean? We don't know. Courts haven't really said a whole lot about it. Uh, The attorney general has put out in his compliance guide uh, some guidance that says that the 10 business days should be good enough for most straightforward requests. But as a practical matter, a lot of requests take a lot longer than that. Yeah, 10 days to me, just having submitted records requests would seem like a miracle if you got in 10 days. Yeah, I think a lot of us would be really happy if there if it was 10 days. And what's ironic is that the bill's sponsors, when it was passed back in the early 80s, they originally had a 10-day time limit on it, and they took it out because they were worried that that would slow down record requests, that, that custodians would always take the 10 days instead of turning things over right away. That was a very optimistic view of things, I think, unfortunately. It, I think we would, would have been a lot better off with uh, with a deadline. So we've sent in our record request. Now, they, the person we're submitting the request to, they should at least acknowledge that they got it within a certain amount of time, right? Yeah, ideally you get us something back from them pretty quickly saying, we've received your request, we're working on it, maybe asking you some questions about it. So if you haven't heard anything back from them in a day or two, Probably follow up and make sure that they got it. You know, if it was emailed, make sure that the email went through and and figure that out. And, you know, whenever you're dealing with the people on the other side of your requests, remember they're human. My advice to people is to remember the three P's of this. You, You should be persistent, but polite and practical about your requests. So be persistent. Make sure you if you follow through on your request, make it clear to them you're not going away until you get what you're legally entitled to. But it is a human being. Treat them like you would want to be treated. If if you make them mad, they can make your life harder in a lot of small ways uh, without crossing the line of illegality. And be practical about what your request really means for the custodian in their office. Uh, if it is a massive request that will 
take uh, you know a huge chunk of their time maybe there's a way you can work with the custodian to narrow your request and still get the specific kind of information you're looking for yeah okay so they acknowledge it comes through should you follow up with just like a polite email after a week two weeks if you haven't heard anything yeah i i always recommend about a week out following up, making sure that it's in the queue, it's being worked on. Uh, if you're in line, it's nice to find out that and know that, that they're not going to turn to it for a while. But there's a point at which, you know, if you've been following up with them and repeatedly and they're not giving you clear answers about how long it's going to be, you might need to talk to a lawyer about it. Uh, that's what the Wisconsin Transparency Project does. We write tons of letters to government agencies about record requests. And sometimes if the letters don't work or if it's a particularly egregious violation, a really long delay, sometimes we move right to a lawsuit. If you're just on your own, though, you haven't talked to a lawyer yet, is it a good idea to just, um, you know, say, hey, I know my rights and I could sue you and I'm to threaten litigation? Does that typically go over well? Every case is different, but by and large, I feel like uh, custodians hear that a lot from people. And if there's not a lawyer actually behind that kind of a threat, it usually doesn't get taken seriously. Yeah, well, I have a kind of a practical example in which you represented uh, Isthmus and, and me in trying to get some records from the Madison Police Department. The broad strokes of it were, I was trying to get these records and every two weeks, month, I followed up. It was 14 months later, still didn't have the records. You brought a case right away then and it resolved it. So can you just walk us through why that was successful? Yeah, that was an outrageous amount of time. Uh, it, it wasn't even a, a particularly large request. It, it just seems like they just decided to ignore it or it slipped off of somebody's desk. We don't know for sure, but uh, it was a good result in the case. We got the records right, right away. We actually got an apology from them, admitting that, hey, we dropped the ball. It should not have taken this long. We'll do better. So that was a good result. Yeah. And another good result was um, you represented another Isthmus veteran, uh, Bill Leaders. And this is much more recent. And he was trying to get personnel. He was trying to get information about disciplinary records for police officers and how did that go? Yeah, he was looking for internal investigation reports. Uh, so every time somebody files a complaint that a, a police officer crossed a line, they investigate it. Uh, sometimes they find that it's not substantiated. Sometimes they find that the officer did something wrong and issue some kind of punishment. And uh, Bill Leaders was looking for, first he had asked for, well, I want to see the the cases that actually resulted in discipline. I want to see not the whole files, but I want to see like the determination document, the final summary document that goes over the investigation and the complaint and what did happen and what didn't happen and what the discipline was. And they were telling him that that was going to take over a year. 14 months was what they were saying. In that case, we filed a lawsuit after it was only three or four months before we filed the lawsuit which might've been a little early in other circumstances, but we figured, yeah, they're telling us it's gonna be over a year. Do we really have to wait until the year goes by before we file this suit? No, we, we didn't. So we, we filed the suit, we did get the records and they wound up paying for Bill's attorney's fees. They paid his court costs. The Madison Police Department also has to had to pay bill leaders $200 in statutory damages for each violation of the open records law, because that's part of the remedies for a records case. What else is part of the remedies in a record case is punitive damages. So in extreme cases, we can sometimes get punitive damages from defendants in records cases. Also, a recent example here is the, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty filed a record request with the Madison School District. And in that case, it took longer than a year and it was not a large request. They asked for uh, a policy and emails regarding a policy and that was about it. And they were just telling him that, uh, telling the people at will that it was gonna, they didn't know when it was gonna be done, but it had been over a year. We filed a lawsuit and it wound up costing the, the district over $18,000. Wow. Now, one thing that would be nice, and it seems like all these cases eventually got settled, right? Like they didn't go before a judge or anything. Does Wisconsin like need a case where like the law is clarified to say, no, 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 three months is the absolute limit, no matter the request. Is that, do you see that ever happening? We would love to get that. It's, it's difficult though, because once you sue, they typically turn over the records pretty quickly. 
at that point, the judge doesn't really care that much about how long is too long because you already have the records and the case usually resolves uh, without asking the judge to issue a ruling. You can get around that for punitive damages if they don't want to pay them and you want to fight about it with the judge. But the problem there is that you're probably not going to be asking for punitive damages if it's only been three months. Yeah, that's that's supposed to be reserved for the extreme cases. So we, we might get a case at some point that says, you know, eight months, nine months, a year is sufficient to justify punitive damages. That would be really nice. But it's very difficult to get the case all the way to a judge ruling that three, four, five, six months is too long. Well, we can all hope so. All right. Thank you, Tom. I uh, really appreciate you telling us how long is too long and, and what to expect when filing an open records request. So thank you for your time today. You're welcome, Dylan. And remember, people, if you don't ask, you won't know. Mid-November is here and fall fishing, fall fishing is officially underway here in Dane County. Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg break it down on this week's Fishy Business. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Uh, Pat, it is uh, mid-November, I guess I would say now. I would say it's officially mid-November now. Uh, how, how has the fishing been looking around the area here? The fishing has been great. Uh, all of the lakes in the area have turned over now, so uh, the fish are looking at winter being right around the corner. And so they are hungry and very willing to bite. The walleye bite has been fantastic around town. Uh, a lot of pike and muskie coming out of the water, too, as those fish get ready for winter. But the panfish bite has also been great. So falls are a really great time to get out and do some fishing. And let's start off just right away with Lake Mendota. Wow, what's happening over there? Well, the star of the show down there is probably the walleye bite. Um, a lot of fish coming out of the University Shoreline area, Tenney Park break wall, Warner Park break wall, uh, a lot of shore anglers doing very well, mostly at night, and it's mostly a live bait deal. So um, minnows under a bobber, minnows under a jig, but also crankbaits and paddle tails have been working really well. Um, but the, the pike bite, there's you know, a ton of pike in Lake Mendota. Uh, they manage it as a trophy fishery. So uh, those fish are also very hungry, and I've seen some very impressive fish coming out of there lately. And let's move over across the way over to Lake Monona. What's happening on there? Well, on Lake Monona, uh, there's also a great walleye bite pretty much everywhere from the, where the Ahara dumps in, uh, down that shoreline to the south, uh, all the way down through uh, John Nolan Drive there. A lot of folks fishing there at night and doing very well, catching some really nice walleyes. Uh, but the panfish bite on Monona has also been really great. Uh, a lot of the fish that were out deeper all summer have moved into shallow areas, mostly into Monona Bay. So the Brittingham Park area is, is really good, and in the, in the area they call the triangles right there. A lot of nice bluegills coming out of there and some crappies. And, of course, Monona's a world-class muskie lake. So I've, I've been hearing about some real, real nice muskies coming out of there lately, uh, mostly on suckers, but also running Shallow running baits over the tops of submerged weeds has been very effective. And let's move over to Wingra, sort of the baby baby sister there. What's happening over on Wingra? Yeah, uh, it's kind of the same deal with the muskies. Lots of good muskie action. The fish over there tend to run a little bit smaller, um, but uh, they're more plentiful. Uh, there's also some good largemouth bass in there, some real trophy fish. A lot of small panfish if you're looking to keep a kid busy this time of year. But actually the spillway by the hospital there, just below that, has been holding a lot of panfish lately. And let's go over to Lake Wabisa and those lakes over there. What's happening there? Well, uh, Wabisa and, Mon and Monona are very similar in that uh, a lot of the panfish have moved up shallow. Uh, actually, just to the north of Wabisa, Upper Mud Lake, which is connected uh, to Wabisa, has a lot of great panfish moving in there, a lot of bluegills and some crappies I've been hearing about. Uh, but you know, Wabisa is also a fantastic musky lake, so I've been hearing about some great musky action and a little bit of good uh, walleye action down near Babcock Park in the Bible Camp area on the south end of the lake. All right, and the final lake we're going to look at today, as always, Kaganza. Sometimes we hear stuff, sometimes we don't. What's happening over on Kaganza? For a change, I've actually been hearing about some stuff. So it uh, sounds like some of the panfish uh, down there have been pretty active, uh, a lot of them on weed lines. 
but also if you can find some shallow structure, they've been getting some good crappies. The walleye bite, too, uh, down there has been improving, uh, mostly in the state park area. If you can find a weed line that's near a uh, drop-off, uh, that's a great recipe to find some good walleye action down there. And now I want to look ahead a little bit here. Now, I, I've been hearing that this winter is looking like it's maybe going to be a little bit warmer than usual here. We'll have to uh, go back to yesterday's new show and hear what Rob had to say, but uh, it, a little bit warmer is sort of what I'm hearing, which means that the lakes will probably be taking a little bit longer to freeze over, uh, and which happens from time to time. There are years where it takes a little while for those lakes to really get frozen, for ice fishing to really begin. But when the lakes aren't freezing over like this, will these sort of fishing patterns sort of now that the lakes have turned over, will they sort of stay as they are as until they sort of start to freeze over like that? Or or what happens when we start getting into uh, end of December, January, and the lakes aren't quite ready for ice fishing yet, but it, there's still shore fishing and things available? What can, what can we sort of look for there? Well, all the patterns that I talked about here should remain right up until ice up. So as long as you can handle being out in the elements. Uh, you'll likely find walleyes up shallow. Uh, panfish in Brittingham Bay, they'll hang out there until there's ice. And then once the ice comes in, in, in Brittingham Bay down there, that's when we're going to have uh, some fantastic ice fishing down there. But uh, the pike bite and the muskie bite uh, will also remain as those fish uh, continue to need food. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a great time to be out and the fish are hungry. And as long as you can access them, they should bite. Now, one thing we don't have to worry that much about about freezing over is the rivers. So what's happening on all of our rivers around here? The Rock River, Wisconsin River, Yahara, what's happening on the rivers? Uh, the Wisconsin River is actually up. It's been up a little bit uh, after a long summer of very low water. Um, but that pushes a lot of fish upstream, and so the dams are a great place to look for fish. So I'm talking about the Prairie du Sac Dam, uh, Wisconsin Dells Dam, Castle Rock, Pete and Wild Dams. All those places are going to be uh, stacked up with walleyes and sauger this time of year. Also some sturgeon in there. I've, I'm still hearing about folks getting nice flathead catfish. Uh, so it's just a, a great mixed bag opportunity. Finding fish on other parts of the river can be challenging, but I would look for deeper holes. That's uh, where a lot of these fish like to overwinter. So, um, But uh, the, the, typically... In some of those holes, it's a slower bite, so a, a smaller, slower presentation is a great option to get those river fish. And now, Pat, the reason I bring freezing over and things like that, the reason I bring all that up is two weeks from today, we record this every two weeks, but two weeks from today is Thanksgiving. So obviously we won't be having a fishing report on that day. Uh, we'll be taking the day off and we'll be back on the 7th. But uh, I understand that you're going to be closed for a little bit as well leading up to that. That's right. Every time uh, th this time of year, it's been a tradition here at the shop to close the two weeks before uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving. So starting on the 11th here through the 24th, we'll be closed and uh, I'll be out enjoying uh, some time in the woods, chasing deer around, but also heading over to the East Coast. Uh, and when I say that, I mean the East Coast of Wisconsin. So along Lake Michigan, fishing tributaries over there, uh, looking for coho, salmon, brown trout, steelhead. Uh, it's a great time to get out and, and get away when things are very, very slow here at the shop, mostly because of deer hunting. Don't go knocking on the door. He, he, he's not going to be there for a little bit here. Well, Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want uh, just by calling one easy number, 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. I'll talk to you in December. That feels weird, uh, but good luck out there. Yeah, thanks so much. And, yeah, I just want to wish everybody a happy and safe Thanksgiving. And, yeah, we'll talk in December. And in local soccer news, while forward Madison's season may be done for 2023, the club is already hard at work planning for the 2024 season. Monday night's town hall event recapped the this past campaign and included announcements for the team as well as facility and match day improvements for Brees Stevens Field. More now from Forward Focus. Hello again to everyone listening to WORT Online and at 89.9 FM on your radio dial. Welcome 
to another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for FMFC theme publication, New Dog Mazine. Joining me as always is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt. This past Monday night, Forward Madison hosted a town hall event at the Forward Club, the bar and gathering space under the grandstand at Bree Stevens Field. The event was led by FMFC's chief operating officer and owner, Connor Kaloya, and the Flamingos head coach and technical director, Matt Glazer. Connor and Matt thanked the fans effusively for their support this past season and then fielded questions from fans on social media as well as from fans in attendance at the event. Topics range from the team's performance in the second half of the season, retaining a core of players from the 2023 squad and recruiting for 2024, as well as planned stadium improvements. We sat down with the club's director of operations, Keith Tiemeyer, after the town hall to get his perspective on the season that was and what 2024 might have in store. Keith Tiemeyer, firstly, thank you for joining us and the listeners of WRT. Obviously, the biggest news at the town hall was a confirmation of Matt Glazer returning as head coach and technical director for the 2024 season. How important is it to have Matt back next season? Well, first of all, it's always good to be with you guys, Andrew and Grant. And second of all, you know, it's uh, I think the third time I've been on a WRT event. And so it's always good to be on the station, um, particular to the club and particular to Matt returning and the coaching staff returning. I couldn't be more excited. Um, you know, as you guys know, I office in the same room as they do, as the coaches do and part of the technical staff here and. I know that this consistency matters. I th- I would like to think that this season that we've just had and just completed, making it to the playoffs again, um, that we can use that as a springboard into next season. Um, I'd like to think that Matt and his staff are a massive part of that, obviously. Um, that his work ethic, his knowledge of the game, his ability to find the right players to play here in Madison – I couldn't be more excited that Matt's coming back, and I couldn't be more excited that Neil and JP will be a part of that, and Jim Launder and Aaron Holbein, and frankly myself. Um, obviously, I believe in that consistency, and I believe in the work that they put forth and to achieve our goal this past season of making the playoffs and to head into using that again as a springboard into the 2024 season. I couldn't be more excited about that. You know, dovetailing off that too, Keith, um, while some fans might be critical of the plan, because while we made the playoffs for the first time in five years, the club fell short of a championship. Um, was this year simply a case of trying to find our way back to the postseason and just build from there into 2024? I think that's a part of it, Grant. I think that's a great question and a great statement. I think that was a part of it. Again, our internal plan, our internal goal was to make the playoffs. Um, you know, you always want to try and win a championship. And it, all of us have personal drive, right, towards that goal and that towards that end. Um, but to make the playoffs was a massive thing when you think about it to be in the first time since the excuse me, the inaugural year of uh, Ford Madison. Um, you got to sometimes you got to take the baby steps, right? You got to walk, crawl before you walk and walk before you run and. I'd like, like I said before, hopefully this is the springboard towards a championship caliber season ahead of us um, in 2024. Um, there's no doubt that that's the goal. We want to win a championship. Our fans deserve a championship. There's no question that fans have every right to be concerned about what the last half of the season, last 11, 12, 13 games of the season looked like. First, and, and same last year, by the way. And so we have to evaluate that. Um, just like the fans are, but we also have to remember that you make the playoffs because of a 32 game season and, right. and a preseason. Um, right. And ultimately, a, what is it? It ends up being almost a 40 week from the start of preseason all the way through the yeah. end of November. Um, yeah. And so you make the playoffs because of the whole body of work and you, you make, you win a championship because of the day to day things you do. And hopefully we're headed in the right direction on the day to day things that we do. So Matt talked about wanting to bring back. 10 to 14 players from this year's squad. Just how crucial is that continuity in the roster if we're trying to mount a title challenge? That's a great question, Andrew. I think, uh, first of all, you'd love to have a season where you're able to bring back 23 at 23, wouldn't you? And it means because you've had the massive amount of success. And I think that we can argue and we can say that we do have 10, 12, 14 players in our current roster that makes sense financially, that makes sense from a caliber of play, that makes sense from a positional caliber of play, that makes sense from a rated, uh, when you look across the league at that position, caliber of play, to actually use that, use those guys or provide, have those guys provide us that springboard that I'm talking about. 
Matt talked this about adjusting our style of play from a more possession-based strategy in 2022 to a more direct style in 2023. Um, how important is it for a club to have a stylistic identity, and is it something that can be flexible and agile based on the competition and their tactics? So I, it's always based on the competition and tactics, right? But it's also based on the talent level and the skill set and the uh, positive attributes that the players that you have on your roster are built on, right? And so only certain players are available to us. Obviously, we can't go get Lionel Messi. Miami's already got him. Um, we can't go get Cristiano Ronaldo. He's in Saudi Arabia. Um, but who can we get? And what do those guys look like? And what's the skill sets that they have? And what do they bring? Because I believe it's a partner game. What do they bring in concert with the other players that we have? So tactics are set that way. Um, it's awesome, I think, to hear that Matt learned some things and the coaching staff learned some things about USL League One from year one to year two. Um, I think it's important to believe – I guess it's important to vet out whether or not you think those things are valuable. I think for him to say that, hey, the league gets played a certain way, the games almost consistently get played a certain way, we have to adjust slightly to that. Yet we've been able to maintain this ball-centered, ball-centric idea and be reasonably successful, I think, is an important thing, too. It is important to have an identity. It's part of our recruitment to have certain players and have certain stylistic players play for us in Madison because our fans deserve that. They deserve good soccer. I do think we're one of a couple teams in the league that does have an identity. I do think you hear it on some of the broadcasts. So you hear them talk about that's some attractive soccer, and you think about a goal – right off the start of halftime against Richmond that, well, we have 38, 42 passes or whatever it was. The other team didn't touch the ball off the kickoff. Well, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a neat thing. But you also see a stylistic thing like the goal that we scored against Greenville when we save a penalty. We win a half knockdown, and we've got five or six guys off to the races in a transition moment. I think that's an important thing. You can't always be both, but it's nice to be able to have both options sometimes. And that'll do it for this week's episode. Special thanks to FMFC's Director of Operations, Keith Tiemeyer, for coming on this week. Andrew and I will be back in two weeks with another episode, and we'll be here all off-season long, bringing you all the news and stories around the club. For WORT, this has been Board Focus. That's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Your reporter tonight was Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to feature contributors Dylan Brogan and Tom Kamenick, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg, and the Ford Focus crew, and the Wisconsin News Connections' Mike Mullen. Nicole Alley engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Ms. Shali Piven is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Guess what? You never have to miss an episode of the local news when you subscribe to it as a podcast on your favorite podcast app. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.